As you know, if you've been here on Wednesday nights, we have been going through more than just a book. And uh, the last five or six weeks, we've been studying on how to study. And tonight, we're going to be putting it into practice. And uh, so what we're doing is we're taking five books throughout the Bible and we'll learn how to study them so that uh, tonight you see, and hopefully you are putting these things into practice. We don't want you to come and sit and listen. We want you to come and sit and then put it into practice, those things. I know myself, some of the things I've learned from the, the teaching that's gone on has been really good to help us to be equipped, to be better saints, to go out and make disciples. And tonight, I want you to help me to welcome Ryan Mobley as he comes to take on Deuteronomy. Let's welcome him. Okay, everybody. Well, I'm, I'm excited about this part. Um, it's been a really great summer these last six weeks. You know, as, as Pastor Paul was saying, that, you know, the, the whole thrust so far is helping to give us all tools to understand and learn God's Word better so we can apply that to our lives to be more effective worshipers of him and ministers for him and those kinds of things. And so as we have spent the last six weeks looking at things of, uh, you know, big themes of the Bible and structures and styles and types of literature and all those sorts of things, we're going to go through the rest of the summer taking a book from each section of the Bible and applying those and really understanding the theme of this book. Um, so that's kind of where we're headed through the rest of the summer. We're going to do three books in the Old Testament and four books in the New Testament, and that'll take us up to um, uh, September, and we'll be uh, jumping into a new series after that. So, um, so we are going to be in Deuteronomy tonight, um, and I'll tell you what, I, as I was been preparing and and reading through Deuteronomy, I, I just really found a whole new appreciation um, for this book and the, the message that it has and, and the power that it has and really what we're going to hear of, of how much Deuteronomy is quoted in the New Testament, actually. It was a book that was referred to a lot. So that's really, that's really exciting. So if you have a Bible... Um, physical one, or if you have a digital one, go ahead and pull it up to, uh, to Deuteronomy so, you, so you're ready to go with that. Let me pray, and, um, and we'll jump into this. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us such a great gift of the Bible, and we get to see the story of how you have worked through um, all of history. Lord, as, as we come here on these nights in particular— um, that we are really submitting ourselves to your teaching, uh, that, that, that we really are um, becoming serious students of your word, Lord, that, that we would be fully trained disciples of Jesus as he is the word embodied. So, Father, I pray tonight in light of a passage that we will be looking at in a little bit, um, that we would indeed love you with all of our mind tonight. And Father, that as we love you with our mind, that that would move 18 inches south and we would love you with all of our hearts. And that would continue to move, Lord, to our hands and to our feet, and that we would love you with all of our might. So Father, just, uh, we just give you ourselves 
at this time and pray that your Holy Spirit teaches us. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want to give you a couple things of review before we get going. Um, so if you remember to uh, a, a lesson of, I think it was about four weeks ago now, that um, the, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, is the Jewish Bible, and they have a name for that called the Tanakh. The Tanakh. And the Tanakh stands for three sections in how they divide the the, uh, their, their, the Old Testament scriptures up. The first section is the Torah. And the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses, also called the law. And then you have uh, the N in Tanakh is, is the Nevi'im, which is uh, the prophets, all of the prophets, okay? And then the last part, the K in Tanakh, is the Ketuvim, which means the writings. And those are things like the wisdom literature and poetry and those sorts of things. So Deuteronomy is the last book of the Torah. It's the fifth book of Moses. It actually gets its name from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18. And since I have my whiteboard, you know it's me teaching when there's a whiteboard on stage, right? So... Um, so in chapter 17, verse 18, um, there is a, uh, a call to write a second copy of the law. Second copy of the law. And so we get the word Deuteronomy from two Greek words. The word deutero, which means second, and the word nomos, which means law. So when the Old Testament Hebrew got translated into Greek, um, that's, you put those two words together, that's where we get the term Deuteronomy from that names the book. Um, so, I thought it'd be really fun to take you on a little journey through time so we understand the timing of all this that's going on. This is something I don't think we did uh, were as, maybe as clear on as we could have been over the last few weeks, so I thought it'd be a really great time to do this now. So, Here's what we find. We have, I'm going to call it prehistory, right? Uh, and then we have Genesis chapter 1, where God creates, all the way to Genesis 12. Um, what, do anyone know who, what main character comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 12 in Scripture? Who's that? Abraham, that's right. So this period of time, prehistory, creation, Genesis 1, through Genesis 12, we're talking thousands of years. We don't know exactly how many thousands of years, but a lot of thousands of years that are happening there. And then you go from Genesis 12 to the end of the book to Genesis 50, which covers the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and that is a period of 500 years. 500 years from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50. Then we get to Exodus chapter 1. Okay, where are the Israelites when we get to Exodus? Where are they living? They're in Egypt. Okay, what's happened to them from the time of Joseph to where we're in Exodus 1? What, what's, what are they doing in Egypt? What's that? They're enslaved, right? They're enslaved. Exodus chapter 1, just this one chapter, 
covers a period of 400 years. Exodus chapter 1. Then we get to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2 records the birth of Moses. Um, It records his growing up. And it records his time when he fled Egypt because he killed the Egyptian. And he went to Midian. Okay? 80 years in Exodus chapter 2. Then... Moses gets his call, you know, his experience with God, the burning bush, and he goes back to Egypt to set his people free as the deliverer, right? So we have Exodus chapter 3 through the middle of Numbers. The middle of the book of Numbers. Anybody guess how long that period of time is? So Exodus chapter 3, Leviticus... Half of numbers. How many? Nope. Nope. One year. That's one year. Okay? And here's, the, here's what happened. I mean, the, Moses took him right to the promised land. I mean, they went straight there. And that's when they sent the, that's when they sent the spies in, Joshua, Caleb, and all the rest. All the rest got freaked out because, oh, there's giants in the land. You know, Joshua, Joshua and Caleb like, no, we can take these guys. Let's go. Let's follow God, right? And they didn't. That's when their wandering started. So from, we are at Numbers 14. Numbers 14 to Deuteronomy is their years of wandering, which is how many years? 40 years. That is where we are at. So, you know, the, the, the thing I want to make you aware of is it's really important when we read the Bible, and especially when we read the Old Testament, we need to keep in mind there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of time passing. And, you know, we're, we're microwave culture people, right? We want it done in one minute, okay? Um, and that's not how it goes. So even when we read stories of these people and what God's doing, this is happening over a long period of time, most lo- you know, oftentimes, okay? We'll talk about this again when we get to Acts. A lot of time goes by through the book of Acts that we read it, and we're like, oh, this happened in like a week. No, it didn't happen a week. It happened in over a lot of years. So by the time we get to where we're at now in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is taking place approximately 1408 B.C., So what we're reading now happened about 3,400 years ago. That's a long time ago. Now, we can can read that and we're like, wow, that's a long time ago. How am I going to have anything in common, learn anything from these people? But what we need to remember is how God has not changed and how God has been working over all these millennia, all these thousands of years and all these, through all these people and all these places. It is amazing when we look at it that way. Okay, good? Good, awesome. All right, now I want to do some, use some tools that we've learned before we really jump in to Deuteronomy just to help catch us up. So do you guys remember... 
it was, I think it might have been the first or second week um, that I was uh, teaching. We were, t- we were doing this story. Uh, we were starting the series, and we talked about the grand narrative of the Bible. The grand narrative. I'm going to abbreviate that. How many people remember grand narrative when we were talking about that? Okay, I'll start you off with the first word. The first word was creation. What's the second part of the grand narrative? Creation then comes fall. Very good. Then comes what? Starts with an R. Redemption. Proud of y'all. And then the fourth one is restoration or new creation. Either one is fine. I like to say new creation because we see, we see it tie back to creation as God is making all things new. So where does Deuteronomy fall in the grand narrative? Where are we in the grand narrative with Deuteronomy? We're in the fall. We are in the fall. We really don't get to redemption until Jesus. But the cool thing is what we start seeing in Deuteronomy, we do kind of start to see a, what I'm going to call a prequel, right? We start to see a prequel of redemption happening in Deuteronomy with some promises that, that God is making to his people. So the literary style, oh, let me say this too, um, because this is really interesting for, for some of you who are Bible nerds out there like I am. Um, how many people have heard of King Josiah? King Jos- he was a good king, right? He started, he started being a king when he was a kid. He was like eight, right? When he started being a king. And in the story found in 2 Kings, chapter 22, verses 8 through 13, um, they are going through the temple and they find the book of the law, it's called, in that passage. Commentators believe what they found was actually the scroll of Deuteronomy. They found Deuteronomy that's referred there, and so they believe that it's actually Deuteronomy that Josiah had found and read that led to the reforms that he did to bring the nation back to God. So a powerful book that keeps popping up. It popped up with King Josiah. It comes back around again in the New Testament and a lot of New Testament teaching. Now, regarding the literary style of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is a historical narrative. It's mainly a historical narrative. Moses is talking. It's a lot of talking. He's reviewing a lot of history of what God has done and what God will do. And there's two chapters of poetry in Deuteronomy. Chapter 32 is a song that Moses sings, the very first psalm that, that God tells him to sing. And then chapter 33 is written in poetry form, and it's actually a blessing and a prophecy over the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's where we're at with the literary style of Deuteronomy. And as regarding the structure, how the book is put together, Deuteronomy is primarily a collection of three sermons by Moses. It's mainly a collection of three sermons by Moses. In essence, it's his farewell address. It was designed to be motivational for the Israelites as they were getting ready to head into the promised land. They have wandered for 40 years. The generation that didn't follow God and go in died off. And now those children and grandchildren are able to go into the promised land now. What we see also, which makes Deuteronomy a little unique, is that from Exodus through Numbers, uh, it's, what we see is really the Lord spoke to Moses. 
The Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses and gave him the law to give to the people. Well, we see now because it's a second telling of the law, Deuteronomy, second law, second telling. It's now Moses speaking to the people as he's reviewing who God is and what God has said. So, regarding this structure, the first sermon we find is in chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 43, and that is what we're going to call the historical prologue. I think that's one of your fill-in-the-blanks. That's the historical prologue. Moses is recounting what they have gone through the previous 40 years, okay? Um, who, what has happened, what God has done. The second sermon starts in verse 44 of chapter 4 through 26, chapter 26, and it is a review of the law. So all those laws that, that, that he laid out in Exodus and Leviticus and all that, um, he, he, he reviews many, many, many of those laws. The third sermon is chapters 27 through 33, and that is, that is Moses' final exhortation to the people, his final words that he's giving them um, right before they go into the promised land. And then Deuteronomy ends with chapter 34, and chapter 34 was most likely written by Joshua because it actually records the death of Moses. So spoiler alert, if you haven't read Deuteronomy yet, Moses does die at the end, okay? Uh, but most likely jo Joshua wrote that. And it's really interesting, you know, in, in many ways, Deuteronomy, is, I was thinking, it's like the Cliff's Notes, you know, uh, if you remember those when you're in school, it's like you could read these really abbreviated editions of all these big novels and get the heart of it. Um, Deuteronomy is very much that way for, um, for, the, for the Torah, for the law. So, so that is our, our basic structure of what we're working with with Deuteronomy. Okay? Um, so it's important to keep these things in mind as we read to help us understand what we're going to be reading and how we can apply that. So, there are four big themes through Deuteronomy that we're going to look at tonight. Four themes. There is one major theme that is over all of it. And it's, this is it. The first big theme is this. Is God's faithfulness despite the unfaithfulness of his people. That's the, that is the big theme that covers the entire book. God's faithfulness despite the unfaithfulness of his people. Let me read to you Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 30 through 31. And it says this. It says, The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. They're standing on the edge of the promised land, and Moses starts off um, his, whole, um, his, his whole dialogue with the people of saying, remember what God has done for you. He alone brought you here. He carried you like a father carries his son. He did it all. It's all about him. Don't start thinking about who you are and what you think you have done. You didn't do anything. You're just following him. God gives the strength 
God makes the provision. God gives the direction. And that's a very easy principle for us to apply to our lives as well, isn't it? We look back and we're in the middle of things and things are crazy and how are we going to get through this? And then we look behind and we're like, gosh, God was with me all the way. And he's the one that brought me here. I just couldn't see it at the time. Moses goes on, he says this in chapter 2, verse 7. He says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your, of your hands. He's saying God has totally taken care of you. He's blessed you in all the work of your hands. Not just some of the work, not just a few parts of your work, but in all the work of your hands. And remember what we said. When we hear principles in the Old Testament, we need to look to see how the New Testament either modifies it, clarifies it, or fulfills it, right? So this is a big principle. God's faithfulness despite the people's unfaithfulness. Is that something we can still, still take with us today? I'm going to say yes. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 11 through 13. And if you are, um, I don't know if you're looking on something digital or if you have a, or, or if you have a, a, a regular book, um, you'll see this section, I have it highlighted here. It's formatted different than the rest of the paragraphs. And that's for a reason because the way this is written is in a poetry form, in a song form. What we're about to read was most likely a hymn of worship that the early church sang. So, this is what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. It says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Listen, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is good news, isn't it? You see, faithfulness is a foundational part of God's character. So it doesn't matter what end of history we're on. It doesn't matter what side of the cross we're on. God is always faithful. Amen? God is always faithful. So that's the big, big theme through the whole book is God's faithfulness despite, in spite of the people's unfaithfulness. Now, we can kind of break up um, the whole book um, into some sub-themes, sub okay, by chapters. So um, the theme now that we're going to talk about of chapters 1 through 11, 1 through 11, the theme we see in these chapters underneath this God's faithfulness theme, this theme is listen and love. Chapters 1 through 11, listen and love. Um, we're going to put a verse on the screen from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And here's what I want to do with that. This is called the Shema. And this is the highest prayer that the Israelites would pray. They would pray this prayer twice a day, morning and evening. And they would pray this prayer, they would recite these verses with as much gusto as they could and passion as they could so Calvary, look up at the screen, take a deep breath, okay, with one big loud voice, let's read this together. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. All right. That is the highest, highest prayer that, we, that, the, that the Jews have that they would pray that, that when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He quoted this. So um, what we're going to do now for the next about three minutes, um, we're actually going to show you a video that talks about the Shema and the richness of this passage. So guys, go ahead and cue that video and let's check this out. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Now the first word of the Shema is hear or listen, which in Hebrew is pronounced Shema. That's where the prayer gets its name. Now Shema is a really common word in the Hebrew Bible, and it's obvious why. Hearing is a very universal activity. It's usually connected with the ear, as in Proverbs chapter 20, ears that Shema and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. Now that seems basic enough, but if you look at the other ways that Hebrew authors can use the word Shema, they use it to mean more than just let sound waves enter your ear. In Hebrew, Shema can also mean pay attention to or focus on. So when Leah, who wasn't loved by her husband Jacob, she has a son and she names him Simon, or in Hebrew, Shimon, because she says, the Lord has Shamad, that I am unloved. So Shema means to hear and to pay attention to and even more. It can also mean responding to what you hear. This is why so many of the cries for help in the book of Psalms begin with a call that God listen. Psalm 27 verse 7, Shema my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful, answer me. So asking God to Shema is at the same time asking God to act, to do something. It's similar to when God asks people to listen. Like when the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, God says, If you Shema me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Now there's a couple interesting things about this verse in Exodus. In Hebrew, the word Shema is repeated twice in this sentence to give it emphasis. If you Shema Shema, meaning listen closely. But also notice that from God's point of view, listening is basically the same as keeping the covenant. So when God asks the people to Shema, what he means is that they listen and obey. And that's the last fascinating thing about Shema. In ancient Hebrew, there is no separate word for obey, meaning to carry out the wishes of someone who knows better than you or is in authority over you. So in the Bible, if you want to say, I will listen and do what you say, you use the single word Shema. In Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. This is why later in Israel's history, when the people were breaking their covenant promises to God, the Hebrew prophets would say things like, they have ears, but they're not listening. The Israelites, of course, could hear just fine, but they weren't actually listening or else they would act differently. And so in the end, listening in the Bible is about giving respect to the one speaking to you and doing what they say. Real listening takes effort and action, and that's the Hebrew word Shema. Pretty cool, isn't it? It's a rich, rich word. I'm going to start using that with my kids now all the time. 
Shema, Shema, listen and obey. So really, you know, when we look at the Shema, one, one thing I want to point out to you, which I think is vastly, vastly important when it comes to our walk with the Lord. So it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So verse 4 is telling us who God is, right? It's telling us who God is. And in light of who God is, we are then told what we are to do. In verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So because who God is, we do. Okay? So our doing, our actions, our words should flow from who God is. You see, God's actions flow from his own character, right? Like we just talked about with his faithfulness. He cannot deny himself because he is faithful. So also our actions should flow from who God is. Our obedience, our love, is based on God and his character. We are, and because his character is all-encompassing, because it's, it's awesome, because it's completely full, we are to love him with everything about us. That's why it says our heart and our soul and our might. And when we talk about love, there's a couple things that we need to keep in mind regarding this. Let's talk about the richness of love. So, when we talk about love and loving God, we need to understand that love in very many ways, and I always spell this word wrong, is a decision. I always get the S and the C mixed up. Is that right? Okay, good. So love is a decision, and it's a decision of action to serve, and it's a decision of action to sacrifice, to give up things for the sake of another. Okay, this is a big part of what love is. <coughs> um, 1 John chapter 3 defines, says, no greater love, lo, lo, says love is this, that Jesus Christ gave his life and laid down his life for us. So the Bible defines love in this way, but love is also, love is also our deepest affections. We don't want to ignore the heart um, because the heart drives a lot of this. So, Love is this decision, but it's also where our deepest affections lie. It's setting our deepest affection on another. And so what we ask ourselves, what I ask you is, do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord? Do you obey not just out of obligation? Do you obey not just out of fear? Not just out of expectation, but do you obey? Do you shema? Because you truly love who he is and what he has done for you. Do you love the Lord? That's the heart of the Shema. That's the heart of this first section of Deuteronomy. The second, um, let me just, oh, real quickly, we got time. Um, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy when he was tempted by the devil. He, was, he, was, he quoted Deuteronomy when he was tempted by, by the devil. Jesus' obedience and his dependence was driven for his love for the Father. Okay? 
and the Father's love for him. So, um, just a couple quick things. He answered, because um, it's all in this section, the first answer to um, the first temptation of turning stones to bread is found in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8, 3. He was tempted the second time about throwing himself off the temple. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And the third temptation about worshiping the devil, and then the devil will give them all this stuff, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. So, we, you know, Jesus may have just been out in the desert during his temptation just meditating on the whole book of Deuteronomy. He had the whole thing memorized, you know, and so he had God's word in him to fight that devil, but that was driven from the love the Father had for him and the love he had for the Father. All right, good. Second theme. Let's hit the second theme quickly. The theme of chapters 12 through 26 is this, blessing and curse. Blessing and curse is the theme of chapters 12 through 26. Basically, there are benefits of obedience, the blessings, and there are consequences of disobedience. Those are the curses. Again, we want to look to see where this principle is carried through the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12 starting in verse 5, says this. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not Discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So when we look at this idea of there's, there, there are benefits of obedience, there's consequences for disobedience, there's blessings, and there's curses, and they're laid out, and we know what they are because they're communicated to us by God, he's being a good dad. He's being a really good dad. One curse I want to point out to you in particular is found in Deuteronomy chapter 21. This will sound very familiar, starting at verse 22. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So it's talking about there is a curse for anyone hung on a tree. What does the New Testament have to say about that? Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's quoted from Deuteronomy. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's Hosea. Verse 12, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus became a curse for us. He was hung on a tree. He didn't stay on that tree overnight, did he? No, he was, he was taken down and he was buried. You see God's word being fulfilled. And through Christ alone, we have the opportunity to be out from under the curse. He doesn't leave us hanging out to dry. He gives us all we need. He gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. And he gives us his people to encourage us along the way. That is the big theme of chapters 12 through 26, blessing and curse. And the last theme that we find in chapters 27 through 34, as we wrap this book up, is the theme of life and death. Life and death. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting at verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, you will not shema, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God obeying his voice and holding fast to him for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob to give them you see we have this choice of life and death and we need to understand that our choices matter our choice in how we live every day matters. We're not a robot. God's not some big puppet master in the sky. He is a sovereign king, and we are citizens of his kingdom, but we have a responsibility for our actions, don't we? Choose life or death. How are you going to choose to live every day? The biggest choice that we face every day, and this is, we see this all throughout this book, the biggest choice we face every day is who we are going to bow down to. Are we going to bow down to the one true God? As it says in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. Or are we going to bow down to an idol? To an idol. Now, there are a lot of passages in Deuteronomy that warn us about idols. That God is warning his people Chapter 4, 25 through 28. Chapter 12, 29 through 31. Chapter 17, 2 through 7. Chapter 20, verse 18. Chapter 29, 16 through 21. Chapter 30 that we just read, 15 through 20. The warnings for idolatry are all over the book. But here's what we need to understand. Idolatry is not about the little wooden created statue. It's not about that. You see, idols are rivals for the hearts of God's people. 
It's a rival for your hearts. This is what it says in verse 17 that we just read of chapter 30. But if your heart turns away, if your heart turns away, if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. You see, worshiping God leads to life. Idolatry leads to death. That's our choice. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that, seem right to, that seems right to man, but its end leads to what? Death. So it seems right to us. It's our natural language. Our natural language is idolatry. We have to reprogram our natural language. We need, God, we need, we need to be redeemed through, through Jesus' work on the cross. We need to be indwelt by His Spirit. We need to continue to feed ourselves on His Word and be with His people to guard ourselves against this. I can talk a lot about idols for a long time. Hopefully we will one day. But really what I want you to hear is that this is about your heart. This is about their heart. And keep in mind in this, you know, there are some things that we read in the law that really mess with us today we don't like. I mean, there's laws against interracial marriage that we read in the law. There, we read about warfare, about going and wiping out entire cities that God's telling us people to do. People get all bent out of shape about those things, but here's what's happening. When God gave those types of laws at this time, at this time, 3,400 years ago with his children who disobeyed and wandered for 40 years, now getting ready to go in the promised land of their forefathers that's infested with idolatry and ungodliness. When he makes laws prohibiting certain things, God's main concern was the protection of the hearts of his people from idolatry that would so easily grow in them. That's what God was doing. I want to protect you from idolatry. Because he's going to these other places and they are not worshiping the one true God. And he knows if you don't do that, if you don't get rid of it, if you don't follow these laws, you're going to do the same thing. And you know what? They did, didn't they? They did. I'm not projecting. It happened. Read about it. Life and death. As this book wraps up, chapter 34, the end of Deuteronomy really goes back to highlight God's faithfulness. Right? That was our big theme, his faithfulness. And it shows in chapter 34, <laughs> this is really funny, the peaceful transition of power. That's not a U.S. democracy thing. That's a God thing. The peaceful transition of power from Moses to Joshua. Now, it's sad because Moses gave this great speech. He reviewed the law. He set before them blessing and curse, life and death. And he says these words in chapter 31, starting at verse 24. It says, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He said, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today while I, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death 
Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. It's sobering. Moses knew these people. He knew the complaining. He knew the, their stiff necks, right? Their stubbornness. And I think Moses knew his own heart. Right? And he knows ours too. God knows ours. He knows that this is our proclivity, which shows us our great need, doesn't it? We can't, we can't, we can't follow the letter of the law and so we get to a point like that, and it takes us really to one place. You see, the law drives us to the cross, doesn't it? Drives us to the cross. Because only Jesus, God himself, could perfectly keep it and thereby fulfill it. The law drives us to the cross. Your challenge is this, coming out of Deuteronomy. I know you believe in grace. I know you do. I know I do. But do you functionally live by law? Do you functionally live by law? Are you still trying to earn something with God by your serving, by your giving, by your attendance, by your good deeds? Are you going to put on Facebook tonight or talk to people? Yeah, it was 95, 112 degree heat index. I showed up at church. Why would you say something like that? Unless you're trying to prove something to somebody. That's functionally living by law. That's not living by grace. What are the idols you have set up in your heart that keep you from fully loving God with all your heart, mind, and strength? What are, what are they? How do you know? Here's how you know. What is it in this life that produces the most fear and anxiety in you when that thing is threatened or removed? And maybe that thing for you is a job. Maybe that thing for you is a relationship, your family, its status, its money, some kind of comfort you have some control you think you have over your life and your relationships, maybe a reputation. What is that thing? And you think about, gosh, if someone messes with that thing, if I lose that thing, if that person gets, and you're just ruined. Whatever creates the most fear and anxiety in you may be your idol that you've set your heart on. But what I want to tell you is this. You can't repent of anything without first identifying it. And that's what the law helps us to see. It helps us to put words to it, right? And so when we do that, now we, now we come, to, come to God with something tangible. And we come to the foot of the cross with something tangible and say, Jesus, you died for this. This is a curse for me that you have set me free from. You come to the Lord with that. 
and you repent and you receive his forgiveness because in the midst of your unfaithfulness, he is faithful. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your faithfulness. Thank you for being good to us when we are unfaithful, for your grace when we don't deserve it. Lord, thank you for being active through so much history. The Lord, we can look back 3,400 years and see what you have done for your people, through your people, and Lord, we still find it very meaningful and applicable and relevant to us today because the heart is the heart. God, I pray that we all love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, that our obedience comes from your character. Thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us this book of Deuteronomy and the story that we can leave here with not just knowledge, but with a deeper faith because you are good and you are faithful. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. All right, you're dismissed. God bless you.